Amen. If you'll turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 6 this morning. Acts chapter 6, we'll be looking at the first seven verses. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose among the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirits and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmaeus, Nicholas, and a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles. They prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase. The number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as you know, over the last several years, our country has seen tremendous racial tension and division from the death of George Floyd to Armad Arbery demonstrates that we have deep wounds in this country that go back decades, if not centuries. There are many of you that probably remember the days of segregation here in the South. Those were not good days. Those were not the good old days, but those were dark days in our country's history. And what was sad and even tragic is that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ Those that confessed his name were often complicit in such racial division. When blacks are relinquished to the balcony or banned altogether from the sanctuary and the worship of God, those that could not come into formal membership of the church, not because of the lack of profession, but because of the color of their skin. That wasn't true of just some churches. That was true of most churches. Even PCA churches, churches that are a part of the PCA to this day, to think that what we witnessed this morning at the baptismal font wouldn't have taken place in many churches just 60 years ago is sickening and quite frankly evil. And there ought to be a righteous anger against it because surely the righteous anger and wrath of God burns against such a thought and such an exclusion. And the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, sadly, was not the leaders of this movement of what was right. They were not the ones that were saying, this is wrong and ought not to be. In many ways, the church failed. And I wonder if that is why the Lord has allowed this tension to continue as a continual scourge on our country. Well, what I see in our passage this morning Where the modern church failed, they failed to follow the example of the early church. Because what we see in our passage this morning on the surface was a problem. On the surface, it was a problem of food distribution. But more than that, it was a racial and ethnicity problem. It was not that just some were getting neglected. It was no all were getting neglected of a certain cultural group. And as a result, it caused division in the church. 
And unlike the church of our time, the leaders and the apostles here addressed it quickly and directly. Now we'll see later in the book of Acts, they didn't do as well with the inclusion of the Gentiles. But at the very least, they got it right here. A problem that could have derailed the church is actually used to bless the church. And so we'll see that in two points this morning. Neglect resulting in harm. And then second, addition resulting in blessing. First, neglect resulting in harm. Last week, if you were with us, you saw that there is a cycle. A cycle that we not only see in the book of Acts, but we see in the life of the church in general is that where there is faithfulness, where there is obedience, where there is blessing, so too there will be opposition. So we read in the previous chapter, in chapter 5, in verse 14, where Luke says that more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of men and women. And soon thereafter, just three verses later, we read these words, but the high priest rose up and all who were with him filled with jealousy. And we saw that they opposed the work of the apostles and opposed the work of the church. Well, this morning we see something similar. We read in verse 1, now in the days when the disciples were increasing in number, so you see that there was blessing, there was flourishing, there was obedience, there was faithfulness in the church, there was a complaint. There was a problem that that is risen, that of the neglect Of the Hellenist. In other words, in this time of blessing and increase, there were problems. In chapter 5, the opposition was external, outside of the church. Chapter 6, we see that it's internal, it's inside the church. And it's hard to say which is worse. Neither are good, obviously. But if I had to choose, I would much rather have the opposition be outside of the church, external to the church, than internal within the church. Why is that? Because when the problems are external, it tends to unite and galvanize the church. But when the problem is internal, it tends to divide and weaken the church. Furthermore, internal problems, internal divisions are just more painful. Why? Because it's done by those that are the closest to you. Seemingly brothers or sisters in arms that that turn against you or turn against one another. And those wounds go deep. I think Jesus would sympathize with my assessments. I think he handled the outside pressure of the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees just fine. But when there was betrayal within his own, that of Judas and even Peter, those betrayals stung. They cut deep. And that is why I say once again, the unity of the church is so important. It is so very precious. The psalmist in 133 says, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. You might ask, good and pleasant to who or to whom? Well, to us, obviously, but even more so to God our Father. It is good and pleasant to God 
when we dwell together in unity and not in division. There is not much that puts me in a worse mood in my home than when my children are short with one another and are bickering with each other. The papa bear comes out, and you don't want to see the papa bear. He is not the teddy bear. He is not cuddly and soft. Why? Because that type of bickering, that type of being slight and snickery with one another creates an environment of, of tension and conflict and unrest. It's a home that is not peaceful. And if you do not want that, if I do not want that in my home or in your home, do you think the Lord wants that in his house? The Lord is very serious about this. He says that if you're odds, at odds with your brother or sister in Christ, don't come before him. Rather, he says, leave your gift at the altar. Don't even come to worship him until you go and reconcile that first. If you're not right with one another, then you're not right with God. In fact, the apostles would even say of husbands, if you're at odds with your wife, if your wife is a believer and you are at odds with one another, the Lord says that he will not even hear your prayers. You think the Lord values unity? Absolutely, he does. So much so that the the Lord prays in John chapter 17 that the church would be one even as he is one with the Father. Division ultimately mars the reflection and glory of God. And therefore, it's serious, it's sinful. And what we see here in Acts chapter 6 is that is being put on the line, so to speak. That there is a serious problem that might cause division. If it is not handled correctly, that could ultimately result in the breaking away, the division within the church. It might even cause the second Presbyterian church of Jerusalem, right? And what was that problem? Well, as we read, there was a neglect in the daily distribution of widows. And before we go into the problem, we don't want to miss here what was right What is right is that we see that the early church was taking care of their own. And the Bible makes it very clear who were, who are to be taken care of. The criteria is set forth. It's not just to take care of anyone and everyone. No, they were to take care of widows, perhaps men, but most likely all women. Those that could not work, those that could not provide for themselves, those that did not have family, Paul says in 1 Timothy that if anyone does not provide for their family, a member of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So families are primarily to take care of each other, but sometimes there is family that is not there in order to take care of those that are in need. And therefore, the church, the household of faith, the family of God is to care for those that are in their midst those brothers and specifically those sisters in the Lord. The Bible is very clear that the Lord has a heart for the orphan and for the widows. Those that are 
neglected, those that are marginalized, those that are oftentimes forgotten by the world, those are the ones that the Lord has an eye upon, and so too must the church. Well, that was the good. The bad is that certain widows were being neglected. The Hellenists, as they are called. Those were the Greek-speaking Jews. In other words, they were Jewish by birth, but Greek in their upbringing. We can speculate from that that they probably came from nominal Jewish families, those that were ethnically Jewish, but perhaps religiously non-Jewish, non-practicing Jews. But what we see and what is encouraging here is that many of them were being converted to Christ. They understood that this was truly the Messiah, that he was the Savior, and they put their faith and trust in him. And yet, these were the very widows that were being neglected. And why is it? What led to this neglect? Well, you see that Acts chapter 6 follows Acts chapter 5. That could be obvious. I hope it is obvious. But the point is this. What happened in Acts chapter 5? Ananias and Sapphira. We saw a couple weeks ago what took place. They were struck down by the Lord. Why? Because they lied. They said that they were giving all unto the Lord, but they only gave some. They held some back. And as a result, the Lord struck them dead. You talk about church discipline. This was church discipline immediately. What was the result? Well, it says that many feared as a result. And you can imagine so. And they might have thought, well, if that could happen to Ananias and Sapphira, perhaps that could happen to me. And as a result, perhaps there was a hesitancy to, to give at all. That the church, instead of becoming joyful and cheerful givers, as the Lord commands, became fearful givers. And as a result, they perhaps had this fear to, to open up their, their pocketbooks or their checkbooks at all. Now, is that the reason? We don't know for sure, but it seems that there was a lack of provision, perhaps, to cover all of the needs within the church. And so the remedy possibly was, well, we're going to take care of our own. And our own here was those that were the true Jews, the faithful Jews, those that had been true Jews from the beginning. And so as a result, perhaps, again, we don't know all the reasons, they made man-made divisions rather than rightly spiritual divisions. Instead of basing it on who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, they made it on the basis of who is ethnically or culturally those that belong to us. They made it along worldly distinctions rather than spiritual ones. Now, other commentators say that it could have been just a communication problem. They were Greek-speaking, and so the Greek speakers weren't able to communicate their needs like the Jewish widows, the Jewish speakers were able to. And so that old saying that the hungry bird gets the worm, by the time they got to the Hellenists, all the worms were gone, right? There was no more to be had. But no matter what the reason was, there was neglect. And there were those that were in the church, those that were also Hellenists that were saying, this, 
is not right. I mean, right, Southern English, this ain't right. And they're right, it ain't. And so what could be done? What was done? Well, we see our second point. There was addition that resulted in blessing. Now, problems can be seen in two different ways. They can be seen as problems or they can be seen as opportunities. Now, I sound like an extreme optimist in saying so, but that is not just a cliche. Last weekend, the elders and the deacons got together for a leadership retreat, and we had a Christian counselor, Lou Priolo, that was with us. And you know what his first point was to us? It was this. The God of the Bible is the sovereign creator and sustainer of the universe. Therefore, all problems fall under his jurisdiction. Do you hear that? Because God is the creator, because God is the maker of all things, that everything falls underneath his power, all things fall underneath his control, even those things that we would deem as problems. That's why when the Calvinist fell down the stairs, he said, praise God, glad that's over. you didn't get it, your neighbor will help you after the service. (laughs) But in all seriousness, problems themselves, right, are still a part of God's plan, even though we might not like them, even though we might not want them, even though we might not want to have them in our life. If problems are handled rightly, they can result in blessings. Haven't you found that to be true in marriage? Things that can divide and do divide if they are handled correctly if they're handled biblically they only divide temporarily and those problems lead and, and should lead to greater unity and being made one well we see that here in the church don't we that the church got it right it says in verse 2 that the 12 summoned the whole church, meaning that they they called for a congregational meeting, we would say. After they had met together, the apostles, and, and decided what they were going to do, they announced how this problem was going to be addressed. And what did they say? First, notice what they do not say. The apostles do not say, you know what, you're right, and we will do it. That's not what they said, is it? Notice what they say in verse 2. It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. The apostles don't say, we're going to do it. No, they say, we can't do it. We don't have time to do it. We don't have the margins on our plate. We are given to something else. We are given to another task. And I think that is important. That needs to be pointed out because there is a time and place to say no. And that is not wrong. That's actually right. It's actually God-glorifying that we would make spiritual prioritizing. That we shouldn't be taking care of those hither and yither if we're not taking care of our own, if we're not taking care of our own family. But to be able to make those spiritual prioritizations, then you must know your place. You must know your calling. You must know your gifts. Notice that they do not say, you know what, we would rather not. Or we prefer not. Or you know what, that might be hard, so we're just not going to. 
Nor do they say, you know what, we, we would just rather just sit in the pew and let somebody else do it. No. Because if we know our place in the body, then we are to give ourselves to that place, not to another place. If the eye does not see, it's not doing its job, right? The eye cannot and should not do the work of the ears. The feet cannot and should not do the work of the hands. The point is this, that we each have a part to play. We're each a part of the body of Christ. And as a part of that body, we are to do that part, not another. And this is a place where I need to step on some toes because that's what I'm called to do to be a hammer once in a while. Notice it does not say, it is not right that we should give up doing nothing. Do nothing is not a spiritual gift. If that is your stance, either out of neglect or out of ignorance, be it no more. Because you're hurting the body of Christ. There is a part for you to play. If you don't know what part to play, I encourage you, we have some ministry catalogs at the back, at the exits, as you head out to the hallway, grab one of those, see the parts that you can be a part of, be a part of the ministry and the service of the church. And if you read through that and you can't find anything in that, maybe that says more about you than about the church. It's a specific way that you can be a part of the body of Christ, a part of the work of God. No person, no one person can do everything. But everyone can do something. And that is what we are called to do. But we notice what they say. We will not do this. Why? Because it says we should not give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. It'll say in verse 4, we must devote ourselves to prayer and ministry of the word. And notice what they're saying. If we give ourselves to the distribution of widows, if we give ourselves to serving tables, yes, that problem will be solved, but there will be greater problems that will develop as a result. In relieving physical hunger, there will become spiritual hunger. So the apostles say, we are going to devote ourselves to this, to what we are called to, to to prayer and to study of the word. And thinking about that again and meditating on that this week, it's a good reminder for me and for Danny and for our elders that we're to devote ourselves. That doesn't mean that we are to to just give ourselves exclusively to that. It does not mean that, that Danny and myself should just lock ourselves in our office all week and then on Sunday we descend from the ivory tower to give you that which comes from God Because as we see from the apostles back in the last chapter that they did not cease teaching and preaching both in the temple and from house to house. They were amongst the people. They were teaching the people and obviously praying for them. But what we are saying is that the elders and especially the pastors need to prioritize that. And again, that's convicting because you notice that is one thing. That seems the least needy. Prayer and study will not be the blinking red light of need. But if it is neglected, the office of pastor, the office of elder, quickly becomes a socialized, uh, a glorified social worker or an event coordinator instead of a, a minister of the word, instead of an intercessor 
for the people and for the church. And so we must give ourselves to that. Praise God for a church that understands that, not only understands that, but wants that and desires that. But notice also what it does not say. They do not say, well, you know what, this, this really isn't a problem. They don't say to the Hellenists, you all just need to quit grumbling and complaining. You need to stop being so earthly minded. What did Jesus say? Man should not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Why are you so concerned about bread? We're here to minister to hearts and to souls, not to mouths and to bodies. Well, they don't say any of that, do they? No, they say this is a problem. And it must be dealt with. We're not the ones that are directly supposed to handle this, but this problem needs to be handled. And so who will do it? And what we see here is they add the office of deacon. And what we see with this addition is that the church is called to minister to the whole person, to body and to soul, meaning physically and spiritually. But the physical needs aren't less or somehow unspiritual, or less than the spiritual needs. Yes, Jesus said we're not to live by bread alone, but that does not mean that man does not need bread at all. He needs bread. He needs the spiritual bread, which is Christ, but he also needs physical bread, which is food. So the apostles recognized that. And that is why I'm so grateful for the work that we do with the the food pantry at Norton Park Elementary. We need to continue to make avenues on how to make the the spiritual bread known to that school, that school of need as well. I'm grateful that the missions and outreach committee are working on that and trying to make those avenues. But but the point is that both are needed. It's not one or the other, it's both. The same goes for those in the church. When there is need, James tells us not to say, well, we'll go in peace, be warmed and well-fed, and do nothing. James goes as far as to say that faith is dead. Why? Because it has no love. It has no care in the heart of a fellow brother or fellow sisters. Physical needs are part of the provision of God of the whole person. And that's why the office of deacon, of diaconate, as we call it, was established. It comes from that Greek word diakono, to, to serve, to be a servant. And notice who it was that were chosen and how they were chosen. You have some good Presbyterian polity here. Notice it says in verse 3, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. Notice it does not say, we will pick them out for you. We know better than you. We know the needs of this church better than you do. No, this is not top-down hierarchy. This is bottom-up representationalism that that the people are to, to choose those that are to represent them, that are to serve them. And notice what it says. Notice the qualifications. It says, don't just choose out from yourself any living and breathing dudes, anyone will do. No, it gives specific qualifications. First of all, notice it says, choose out from you seven men, as in males. And I know that's not a 
popular concept these days. And some might even want to argue with me. Some might want to fight with me and say, well, pastor, that was just cultural. Of course, they had just men in that day. But in this day, we can open it up. But it's interesting. In 1 Timothy 2, Paul there links it to the creation order, not to the cultural order. Before there was any culture. He says that there was distinction between males and females. And so, therefore, we also see that distinction yet today, even within the church, even within the offices of the church. Again, somebody might say, well, well, pastor, men cannot minister to all the needs of women. Therefore, we need women deacons. I say to that, hold up. What was the primary need that created this first office? It was the distribution to Widows who were women, right? And so the early church saw that these men could provide this need to women. You didn't need women to provide only for women. Now, that doesn't mean that we do not utilize women in the ministry. That would be foolish. That would be to cut off our nose despite our face. But the office, the leadership should be for men only. 1 Timothy 3, Titus chapter 1 would seem to confirm the same. Again, not because women are less than. Don't hear me wrong. No, we believe in the equality of men and women, but we believe that there is also distinction that each have their role to play and ought to play that role. He goes on to say, pick out from you seven men. Not that those that can just work a broom or plunge a toilet or hold an offering plate. No, it says nothing of their ability, does it? It says everything of their spirituality. It's a reminder that this is a spiritual office. They are to be men of good repute, full of spirit and of wisdom. They're to be men of character, outwardly and inwardly. In other words, they are to, to be the, the cream of the crop, those that you would look up to spiritually speaking. Peter and the apostles say, choose them and them only. Men, as we read this, and I speak to all men here, not just elders, not just to deacons, not just to nominees, but to all men, young and old, this is what we should be desirous of. This is what we should be jealous of. That this would be true of me, that I would be a man of good reputation in the church and without, outside the church, a, a man full of the Spirit, meaning full of the fruits of the Spirit, of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. That I would be a man full of wisdom that can and is able to lead in other words, a, a man that is like Christ, that is our calling. That is what is set before us. And I don't know about you, but I don't think any woman had a problem following Christ, did they? No, they eagerly did. They wanted to because this was a man that cared for them, that loved them, that served them. That is the office of deacon. That is the office of elder. That is the, the office of being a husband to a wife, and to children. That is a high calling. I would even say it's the highest of callings. It was said of Woodruff Wilson, and he was asked by his biographer what was his greatest honor. 
And you think it would be being the, the 13th president of the United States or the 34th governor of New Jersey or the, uh, um, the, excuse me, the 28th president and the 13th president of Princeton University. He was the president of a, a university. He was the governor of a state. He was the president of the United States. You know what he said was his highest honor? He's been chosen as a ruling elder of his local Presbyterian church by those people that loved him, prayed for him. And I would say that is true. It might not be much in the eyes of, of the world, but in the eyes of a spiritual man, in the eyes of God, that is what is most valued. It's these qualities that must be true of each and every one of us. And there is no greater privilege this side of heaven. And so may we strive forward Would we fan those spiritual flames for Christ and for his church and for his kingdom? And notice that the people thought that this was was good. It says that they pleased the whole gathering and they chose seven men. And you see their names there listed in verse 5. Interestingly enough, they're all Greek names. Meaning that most likely these were all Hellenistic Jews. These are probably some of the men that, that brought forward the problem. And the the church, the believers said, okay, here you go. Let's set you apart to fulfill this need and so that there would be no neglects of the Jews or for of the Hellenist, that you would care for all of those. And we see that this wasn't just a social gathering or a club or some community organized group. This becomes a permanent office in the church. And you see the laying on of hands, which means the the sanctioning, the the setting apart of these men unto God and unto his church. Something that still goes on today. Just as you have chosen names and put them forward and they've gone through training and in a couple weeks you will choose your own by election. And on the beginning of the year there will be this laying on of hands. That isn't some mystic thing or some odd church created culture that is something that is biblical the laying on of hands setting apart for this office but what was the end result verse 7 the word of god continued to increase and the numbers of disciples multiplied greatly in jerusalem isn't that a beautiful verse as a problem threatened perhaps you could even say it was the the work of the evil one himself the lord by his blessing And through the shared wisdom and godliness of the apostles and the godly leadership turned this problem on its head. They could say like Joseph was able to say to his brothers that you intended this for evil, but God intended it for good. That is what we need to pray for in the church. And that is what we even need to, to strategize about and think about when there are issues. And that's how we should think about things. We shouldn't think about them as problems. We shouldn't think about them as, oh no, what's going to happen when they take place? We should be thinking about them and saying, Lord, what are you doing in this situation? How are you going to use this as a part of your glory and the good of your church? How would you use this to increase your church and your kingdom throughout the world? What a perspective to have. Well, no, as we close, just one interesting note there at the very end, it says that part of those that believed and became disciples were many of the priests who became obedient to the faith. 
I wonder if they became obedient to the faith because they saw the selfish leadership and division of the high priest in the previous chapter. They saw the division out there. And then they looked at the church and they saw the unity. They saw the the blessedness. And as a result of that, they thought that is the, the true church. That is truly the church of the Messiah, of the Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And I tell you, in a divisive world where it seems like no one can get along anymore about anything, the world should look to the church, should look to this church and see unity, see love, see care, see those that are very much different, very distinct, those that are of different ages and of races and of interests, but those that are getting along because they have unity in the Lord Jesus Christ, because they are family, caring for and loving each other. That is what we're called to, church. We're called to care for each other, body and soul, from birth until death, all because of our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And what a blessing, what a joy to be able to do so. What a blessing and a joy to be a part of and serve the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the establishment of this office, the establishment of service that is so needed. Lord, in this world, there are many problems. There are many needs. But Lord, as the body of Christ, we can care for those problems and care for one another in the midst of those problems by sharing burdens with one another. And so would we be such a church that loves one another, that is asking how each other are doing and and really mean it in caring for one another physically as well as spiritually. Lord, would you do so through the power of the Holy Spirit and the love of God that you have lavished and shed in our hearts, that you have poured out upon us that we now can pour out upon each other in the care and upkeep of this church, all for your glory, honor, and praise. For we pray in Christ. Amen.